0: Today's global consumer is very clear in their demand for safe, affordable and sustainable protein to continue to meet these rising expectations requires both leadership and collaboration with food chain stakeholders, academia and the veterinary community. Merck Animal Health is pleased to amplify the voices of leaders throughout the protein supply chain here on this podcast, caring for animals and creating trust. So pleased that you're able to join us for this episode of Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. My name is Tim Hamrich, and I'll be your guide as we explore the leadership that's taking place throughout animal agriculture. Today on episode two, we take a deeper look at what it means to connect with consumers all the way down to the level of what's actually happening in their brain when they see or hear certain messages about agriculture. We have on the show Dr. Jessica Meisinger. Senior Account Manager for Sustainability at Merck Animal Health. Jessica is part of the Veterinary and Consumer Affairs team at Merck that's led by Judson Vasconcelos, who you heard from on the last episode. Also joining Jessica today is Dr. Tyler Davis, an assistant professor at Texas Tech University in the area of cognitive psychology. His work focuses on how people form and understand concepts. He was drawn to working with food, because it's connected to each of the five senses and also has deep ties to things like culture, ethics, and experiences. If you're wondering now what animal agriculture, sustainability and cognitive psychology all have in common, well, buckle up because you are going to love this episode. We go way beyond the traditional advice of bridging the gap between producers and consumers to understand how consumers brains react when presented with messages about their food. Now, long before Jessica was a senior account manager for sustainability at Merck, in fact, while she was still a teenager, her father took her to a meat processing plant. And while understanding the realities of where food comes from, she also appreciated the fact that these operations were able to utilize every aspect of the animal. This stirred her interest at a young age in both meat science and sustainability.
1: So when I went to college at Iowa State for my undergrad, I was pretty set on wanting to be a meat scientist and I continued with that. I have a PhD in meat science but I kept this thing about sustainability always and it wasn't popular at that time. So I did a project on mandatory animal ID during my PhD. I worked a lot with the renders during that which is how I got my first job out of college. I got hired by the National Renderers Association and I got hired as their director of communications. They had no communications. So I built them an entire communications program, which was a challenge. I have no book learning at all in communications, literally zero. By the end of it, it was pretty much boot camp. I've done media. I've made infographics. I've done videos. I've built websites. I've done everything now. And I totally rebranded them into sustainability. And it was very, very popular. But it also gave me a really strong background in talking about an issue that might have some ugly parts and talking to the general public about an issue like that, sharing a story that might not be as pretty as some of the other stories that we have to share. So that was a fantastic experience. And when I got the opportunity to move to Merck Animal Health, I took it. My role there to start with was sort of a liaison between Agriculture and restaurants and retailers. And that was going very well, but an opportunity came up to be the North American sustainability lead. And I took that. I work in sustainability now for Merck Animal Health. I'm on the same team. Our team is veterinary and consumer affairs. It's been very exciting to be able to do some of the sustainability work at a higher level. But this work was very important because. As you know, I'm sure, survey data that you get when you survey consumers and then what consumers actually do are two totally different things. And so this research got at what their brain is thinking. It might not even be what they think they think. It's what they actually think. We wanted to know about that.
0: So let's go a little bit deeper into the study itself. Essentially, the study showed participants' various infographics related to food and agriculture and evaluated how they responded on a cognitive level. To put it simply, we wanted to know, do infographics work to help people understand their food? The answer may be a simple yes or no, but it has some interesting implications for all of us to better understand communicating about agriculture. Tyler gives some more background for the study.
2: Well, uh, you know, there was definitely uh, some collaboration back and forth, especially when we were starting up the project, uh, taking a look at what we do uh, in cognitive neuroscience and with MRI, and then what kind of things would be interesting to uh, Merck from an applied level. We had a good discussion about that, and the infographics uh, came up as a particular area of interest to both of us because they're a real world example of how people can learn about a new conceptual domain. So if people do know something about some of these areas, but really the people that we're working with, the average consumer doesn't have a great concept of them. For me, it was a really good opportunity to take, okay, here's something that's conveying a concept to people about how this dimension of food production works. Can we look at the brain the same way we would look at for a normal concept that we study in the lab about animals or, you know, visual concepts or so on, and uh, take a look at some of those same processes related to uncertainty and positive affect and see how that relates to people's processing of these. So I think once we got on the same page about what would be useful for Merck and what is possible from a neuroimaging standpoint, we converge rather quickly on looking at risk perception, processing of uncertainty, attitudes, benefits, things like that, that map on pretty well to well-constrained brain regions. So in terms of some of those straightforward dimensions of how people are processing the information, just do they like it? Are they you know, feeling more uncertainty? Are they sensing more risk? Those things are relatively well-constrained. Good places to start if you're looking at how attitudes map onto the brain and how they relate to people's processing of infographics associated with food technologies.
1: You're buying your meat when you pick it, sort of taste tasted, if you will, you know, like sight on unseen. You have to guess, and you're guessing through a set of lenses. So things that you have experienced in the past, that make you think this is a good purchase. And some of those things are color marbling, but some of them are animal welfare standards, brand, brand loyalty goes into this a lot. And it's important to know how people are thinking. On top of that, we funded Tyler's research, but we also funded some research by Rhonda Miller on this infographics as well and she used eye trackers. Her research looked at how long people's eyes were on different parts of the infographic and for how long. And I think that research was very interesting, too. And when you combined both pieces of research, they came up with a lot of the same conclusions, that people were reading the infographics. They did change their minds some on the infographics. There was interest in them. The most interest was on the More controversial ones, the ones that were more specific. So, not the broad ones like sustainability, but the specific ones that felt more risky. It showed that we probably should be engaging on these topics. There is room to change people's minds or to make them feel better about how they already feel.
0: Now, you don't have to look very far on social media to see people sharing things they already agreed with that sort of reinforced what they already believed. But is there really reason to believe that people will change their mind based on effective content like infographics?
2: We found some good evidence that people were changing their minds about some of the technologies um, after they've read them. I believe Rhonda did it as well. I haven't uh, read her full report, but I've seen some of her data and she has some really compelling data about how people digested the infographics in terms of where they moved their eyes and how that related to specific attitude change. I think there's more work to be done here, in terms of how long that change is and how that translates to actual in-market consumer behavior. So there's you know room to work potentially with uh, Ag Econ and other people that would be uh, measuring choices at the grocery store, how this translated to downturn attitude change. But I think what we've seen so far is great evidence that these are working and that people are engaging in these specific uh, reasons to maybe not be so fearful of these technologies. So the ones they engage with a lot from both Rhonda's and the work we did were things like hormones and the antibiotics. People were taking into account those arguments a decent amount and digesting the, you know, graphical mathematical information from them explaining how the uh, antibiotics get used or how the hormone dose uh, relates to the actual tissue accumulation in food. there's you know, a lot of things that we're definitely learning about here, and those things uh, by all the measures we looked at at least led to immediate improvements in some of the attitudes. Now, a lot of things are different from how we study this in the lab that I think we need to look at down the line, but We're seeing a lot of good evidence that you can move people's opinions around by exposing them to this information.
0: It's an interesting finding that not only are people energized by the information presented, but they're actually considering a new perspective as a result. So, how is a company like Merck using the results of this study? And maybe this might inform how all of us could use this information.
1: We're making more infographics. It's clearly something that works. And the idea that maybe they need to be specific has led to talk about, should we be splitting infographics up? Instead of one big infographic, should we be making four that are more targeted? We don't know exactly what drew the eye in this research. This study didn't parse that out. There is research that could. So we don't know what did draw their eye, but we do know that people read the infographics. And so we're going to Continue to engage using them, keep producing more, and get them in front of more people. Because if they don't read it, if they never see it, if they never encounter it, it won't make a difference. The other piece is that the research showed that it got people thinking, that it stimulated the thinking part of their brain. And we probably need to keep them thinking. We need to be following up. We need to be re engaging. When you think about anti ag activists, they're engaging a lot. They don't forget to follow up. And so ag could really stand to be doing a better job with that. How can we stay in front of people? How can we make sure when they have a question, they come and ask it to a producer, for example. We have this feeling that people won't be comfortable with technology. And I get why we feel that way. We've gotten pushback
0: it's fantastic that we're able to find ways to more effectively communicate the truth about our food system and related technologies. And it's exciting that there's evidence that people are willing to approach these messages with an open mind. But how do we know that all of this will actually lead to any sort of change in behavior?
2: Uh, Yeah, that's essentially what we're looking at here is we're taking the information that people are looking at and we're Um, mapping that onto the brain and looking at what parts of the brain are active while they're looking at the information and how we know that translates into behavior. Um, And this is where I think what we're doing separates us a bit from what's going on in uh, neuromarketing or has been for the last 10 years is we are explicitly mapping it onto behavior. So whether that's behavior is their downstream attitudes that they measure just a little bit further or the difference between their pre and post attitudes, Everything that we're doing uh, is at least partially grounded in predicting behavior. Like I said, one of the things that we need to be doing is continually measuring further downstream behavior. So, actually taking a look at saying, not just is this brain region activating and predicting behavior here a moment later, but rather, can we actually predict what they're doing next time they go to the supermarket? And that involves more intensive longitudinal stuff, you can improve those predictions, I think, by breaking the arguments down, which uh, Jessica says that they're working on doing, um, you know, cutting the infographics into smaller pieces, and then you increase your uh, kind of variability in the message, you can better uh, then use that to predict changes in behavior using the neuroimaging technology. So I think a lot of what uh, is going on here is only going to improve our ability to do that. But we know for sure, right now, we're not just doing brain reading where we're saying, ah, oh, this brain region's active, therefore they're liking it or not. We're actually grounding that in predicting their behavior and attitude change. So I think that's one of the things that we're doing special in this project and that separates it not from all neuromarketing, but from the classic neuromarketing you saw, you know, 10 years ago.
0: Okay. Well, what about tips and advice for those of us who want to communicate more effectively ourselves? How can we use this study and the learnings from it to be more clear in our messages?
1: When I looked at making infographics, I specifically hired someone who had no experience in agriculture because that was who we were aiming the infographics at. I wanted that first step to be she had to understand the infographic. So it had some built-in quality control. If she didn't understand it, then I went back and worked on the wording because it's not good.
0: Great tips there about approaching it from the perspective of someone with no context at all. Also checking to make sure it's easy for them to understand and, of course, distributing it far and wide. Tyler also adds that giving them a reference point or a sense of scale or maybe even an analogy can also be helpful.
2: I think the big thing that we learned from all this too, though, is that they are engaging a lot when you give them some sort of easy way of understanding the numbers or making an analogy with the graphical information to how the process works. So some of these things that were in the, um, again, the hormones infographic we worked with and the antibiotics infographic we worked with, those are the uh, infographics that led to some of the largest amounts of attitude change by our figures on average. Uh, were things that people could engage with the numbers fairly easily. So I think, um, although you don't want to put a whole bunch of math on your infographic, when it's a concept or a problem that works because of people's intuitive mathematical reasoning, which is largely what the problem with hormones is, is people's uh, dose to response and sensitivity. People think if you have just a little bit of something they know that they don't like, then it's just like the whole thing's ruined kind of thing. If you can engage in that in a way that helps them get past those hurdles and understand the math behind it without giving them specific numbers, I think those things seem to really help here. But then is that advice going to work in every scenario? Uh, maybe not, because it, again, depends on what the specific issue is with the domain you're looking at. So, with hormones and antibiotics, it really is, you know, people's intuitive, just like a trace of this thing is going to be just as bad as drinking a bucket of it. That's not necessarily the case in other areas. So, it depends somewhat on, again, the domain. But I think uh, helping people understand the process behind things. Really is what they want to know about uh, here. So to the degree the infographic helps to get that across, I think it's big that uh, using all of the animal that we talked about a little bit earlier, you can still see the power of that on uh, Twitter. I was seeing one of those just the other day, and you know, some Twitter war about veganism going back to, like, well, actually meat eating's more okay in places where they eat all of the animal. And it's like, we do that for sure in our meat industry. There's not a single thing wasted in meat production, but people don't understand that. So again, to the degree that you can put understanding the process into something simple that they'll move their eyes towards, that's really what the problem is here. And I think how you're going to lead to the most thinking when people approach these infographics. I think some of the least successful stuff we saw is related to People not spending a lot of time on fine points and text. So, you got to get them to understand the process without reading a ton of text. So, yeah, people don't read the 25 page booklet about these things, but they also don't even really want to read a paragraph about it. So, <laughs> to the degree that you can put it into pictures and they understand the process, they understand the mathematics behind it without having to do the math, those are all things you want to emphasize in your infographics. And they seem to be working when we're working with food technology topics like this.
0: Very interesting stuff. As we get ready to close out this episode, I asked both Jessica and Tyler for their number one takeaways from this report for others hoping to communicate about agriculture.
1: My number one takeaway would be don't avoid risky topics. Don't avoid the controversial topic. There's more room for improvement in those controversial topics and people were willing to think about them. They were at least willing to spend some time pondering the idea. And so there's room for improvement on those things. They shouldn't be ignored. They're not being ignored on the other side of those controversial topics. So it's really important to keep engaging and keep making infographics, keep talking, keep doing outreach, keep doing everything we can.
2: You know, we know this from work on concepts in general. People don't, just like not have a story for things, or they don't just say like, oh, I don't understand that, so I'm going to just let it be. They make up something or they take whatever they have uh, to think about it. So if somebody else is saying, you know, you need to think about hormones and here's why you should never use them, or this is why you need to worry about it in your turkey or whatever. They're seeing no hormones all over the place. If you don't address that and explain the process to them and explain why they shouldn't be scared, they're just going to either make up a story themselves for why they should be scared of it, or they're going to uh, look for the information and they're going to go with what the other people are saying. You have to uh, work on honing the arguments and you have to address them and help people understand the process. And I think with all these cases, you know, once you understand the process, it's not that scary. But it takes, uh, you know, refinement at every level to get the arguments better. Neuroimaging, like we're doing in the bioinformatics, are one, you know, kind of spot on the step of understanding how people are processing the information, taking these arguments and kind of vetting them a bit more to understand how people are engaging with the information. In that way they can help. So we're not trying to mind read people or implant thoughts. We're just trying to help people understand the process here, right? And uh, looking at a richer depiction than just survey data or opinions afterwards can help us understand what they're engaging with. So I think in that way, this project was uh, really successful and also you know, highlights how you can use this technology To get to a better spot.
0: While knowing all the successful tips and tricks and tactics are great, none of them are a substitute for the one critical component authenticity.
1: Yeah, you want it to be packaged well and correct, but you also want it to be authentic. And the more authentic your voice is, people can tell and they'll trust you more. So, It's important to get the information right. It's important to be in the right places. It's important to be authentic. It's just important to be out there.
0: Thanks so much to Dr. Jessica Meisinger and Dr. Tyler Davis for sharing this important information with us here today. If you got any value from this episode, please share it with someone else you know who cares about spreading accurate messages about the industry of agriculture. I think we can all benefit from this information and craft our messages more accurately and more effectively. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of Caring for Animals and Creating Trust. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. You should be able to find us on all of them, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. We'll be back with another episode very soon.